Christ is risen. Hallelujah. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, and from our risen and ascended Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Yes, not only is he risen, he is ascended into heaven as we confess in the creeds. This past Thursday was Ascension Day, the 40th day after Easter. The day on which the scriptures tell us that Jesus left this earthly realm to return to the right hand of God. Today we observe his ascension as a day of celebration, but with an element of bittersweet longing too, wishing for a closer presence with our God in the flesh. Yet we still have his promises that he is with us always, to the close of the age, and indeed he is. He dwells continually in our hearts and our minds through the working of the Holy Spirit. And He is with us physically as well as His Word strikes our ears and as His body and His blood are eaten and drunk in the supper. Ascension Day is one of the major feasts of the Christian church year. One that we do hope to observe here at St. Paul on a Thursday with a divine service in the future. There's ample evidence that Ascension Day has been observed in the church from at least the 4th century forward. The writings of early church authors such as St. John Chrysostom, Egeria, and the Greek historian Socrates all give testament to this. In the Western church, the Paschal candle has traditionally been extinguished following the observance of Ascension. Here at St. Paul, we will remove the Christ candle from the chancel after our observance of Ascension and not bring it back again until the beginning of Advent. The Ascension marks the end of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ, and it begins His exaltation in power and glory at the right hand of the Father. It is during the mention of the Son's periods of humiliation from His incarnation through his suffering, death, and resurrection, you've probably noticed Pastor Knuckles and I bowing and genuflecting and kneeling during the confessing of the Nicene Creed. And then we stand again at the mention of Christ's ascension, for at that point his humiliation is over and he's returning to the glories of heaven, once again fully exalted. This show of reverence is a visible reminder of the fact that God loved us enough to leave heaven and come to us in the humility of human flesh to save us from our sins. It's not required that we bow or we genuflect, but it can be helpful. The Gospel reading from today's account from St. Luke opens in the middle of a scene where our risen Lord is speaking to His disciples. It is evening on Easter Sunday. The two disciples have returned from Emmaus and they have told the eleven and the others about their meeting with Jesus. And as they talk, Jesus himself stood among them. He shared words of assurance with them and he ate broiled fish in their presence. Then begins our gospel text for Ascension Day. And this text can be divided into two distinct parts. First, Jesus meeting with his disciples in that upper room, and then the scene of his ascension. 
In this meeting, first our risen Lord explains to his disciples that the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms all refer to him and his life and ministry and work. Those three phrases refer to the main divisions of the Old Testament. Now we might think of the Psalms as primarily poems and songs, but they have a great deal of importance in pointing us toward the Messiah. For example, there are several psalms that describe his suffering and death, a few that prophesy his resurrection, and at least one, Psalm 68, that refers to his ascension. One author of a Lutheran commentary on the New Testament explains the Savior's lesson to those in the upper room this way. Jesus repeats what he has done for the two Emmaus disciples. He takes all these disciples into the scriptures. So even though Jesus had taught the disciples all about the messianic quality of the scriptures throughout his earthly ministry, they still did not understand. And so the risen Christ needs to open the minds of his followers that they may understand the events that they had witnessed as the fulfillment of the holy scriptures. This has significant implications for the doctrine of faith. You see, spiritual understanding does not result from drawing conclusions about empirical evidence, nor agreeing to rational proofs, but solely from God's gracious working upon our hearts. Jesus summarized what the Holy Scriptures prophesied, his suffering and his rising on the third day. And then he goes on to explain why. So that repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name. This is the fulfillment of the commissioning of the suffering servant that was prophesied in Isaiah 49, 6. And then Jesus tells his disciples, you are witnesses of these things. This term, witness, is an expression both of their confession of the gospel of salvation and their verification of what Jesus had said and done to others that they would encounter the rest of their lives. Their witness to fact, as well as their witness to truth, are one and the same. It is the unavoidable result of the fact that the gospel presents a historical revelation. So, how do we take Jesus' instruction about us as his disciples being his witnesses? Do we casually disregard them, losing them in the drone of a Bible that we might hear and sometimes even read, but too often fail to mark, learn, and inwardly digest? Or do we hear Jesus' words earnestly? Do we take them to heart and realize that being both completely true and also powerful enough to make realities where they did not exist before, his words make us witnesses. Some of you may have heard the name Adolf Rupp before. He was a legendary coach at the University of Kentucky. He was wildly successful winning numerous conference and several national titles. And at one time he was the winningest coach in college basketball history. And so great was his impact on the Wildcats program that the facility in which UK games are played today is known as Rupp Arena. In one interview, 
Coach Rupp bragged that he could take any average player and make an All-American out of him. Now, the journalist who was conducting the interview challenged this seemingly preposterous statement. And so a friendly wager was made that Rupp could not turn a certain freshman basketball player who had modest ability into an All-American. But after that news interview, Adolf Rupp always referred to that player as his All-American center. At every speaking commitment, at every news interview, at every opportunity where the player or the public could hear it. It was as if Rupp believed that by repeating the title often enough, All-American, it would make it real. Well, would it surprise you to find out that this player actually did get named to the All-American team? And would it surprise you all the more that this young man, Cotton Nash, actually made the All-American team three times? So Rupp won his wager with that writer. You see, what we believe about ourselves, and more importantly, what God says about us, is of more value than all of the gifts and abilities or money or power with which we start. Most people would agree that believing in your potential is important if you want to accomplish something. Yet no matter how hard we try, no matter how much we might boast about what we can do, we have limits. There are limits on how long our physical bodies will live. There are limits on how long we can go without food or water or sleep. There are limits on how much we can do in a day. We especially have limits on our ability to do what God's law demands of us. Limits on our knowledge. Limits on our natural understanding. And of all of our wishes and all of our statements and all of our positive thinking cannot change this. Many people, however, have a hard time believing that we have limits. They think that we can overcome the realities of this world, and so they run off on their own, trying to make things happen, instead of letting their lives be guided by what God places in their path. There's an expression which pertains to this, which goes, as opportunity is knocking on the front door, many people are out in their backyards looking for four-leaf clovers. Well, think of those disciples on that first Easter evening. During the past few years, they had followed a man that they were sure was the Christ. And yet in the past three days, things had seemed to go horribly wrong. Their leaders had had him arrested with help from one of Jesus' disciples. In a matter of hours, Jesus is painfully dying on the cross. And now on the third day, his body is missing and some people are telling them that he is alive. What is going on? They had such a positive attitude only eight days earlier when they entered Jerusalem. And now their world made no sense to them. Now the disciples knew the Torah of Moses. They know the prophets. They have read the Psalms and the other devotional writings of the Old Testament. They know that the scriptures promised the Messiah, the Christ. For three years they had heard the teachings of Jesus. All of this, and yet, they still did not understand. Now, they thought that hiding in fear was the right response to all they had seen and heard and experienced. 
They were like that person out in the yard looking for a four-leaf clover while Jesus is knocking at the front door, speaking of repentance, speaking of the forgiveness of sins, and speaking of everlasting life. Are we like those disciples? Are we asking what is going on at the same time Jesus is trying to explain things to us? Instead of hearing what he tells us about our problems and the solutions he has to them, we sit around asking, what gets into people? What prompts a person to experiment with drugs or to drink too much? What makes someone beat his wife and children? Why would anyone leave the church, turning his or her back on the gifts given to them in word and in sacrament? What is going on? Well, in days gone by, it was simply called sin. But now we hem and we haw and we rationalize and we call it any euphemistic name that we can think of, but often not sin. Instead, we blame our problems and our failings on society, on our parents, on genetic or environmental factors, or on the government. Anything but on ourselves and our own limited human nature. You see, like the disciples, we often fail to understand what is going on because we are all, by nature, sinful and unclean. But here's an opportunity offered by Jesus beyond our imagining. An opportunity that is summarized in his words, repentance and forgiveness. An opportunity made certain by his death and resurrection. Jesus opened the minds of his disciples that night to understand the meaning of his death and his resurrection. And now Jesus is knocking on our front door too. Christ is opening our minds so that we can understand. Jesus told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. As John Chrysostom puts it, repentance. This alone will turn a wolf into a sheep, make a publican a preacher, turn a thorn into an olive, make a debauchee a religious fellow. Christ is knocking on the door. Are we hearing his call to repentance? Are we hearing his words of forgiveness? Or are we wandering away, looking for a four-leaf clover of our own discovery, or worse, one of our own design? Our Christian life is a life of continually answering the door and meeting Jesus. Flinging ourselves at his merciful feet, we are heartily sorry for our sins and sincerely repent of them. We have the Lord's word of forgiveness. And Jesus said, you are witnesses of these things. But after we answer the door and hear the words of our Savior, do we close it again and go back to looking for our four-leaf clovers? Why do so many of us fail to be witnesses of these things? Those who have received Jesus' gift of forgiveness and new life also receive his power to be witnesses of the faith. Imagine a couple who had dated for a few years. The young man loved the girl and he wanted to propose to her. However, he had cold feet and he could not muster the courage. 
And after an agonizing week of wrestling with his emotions, he spoke to his father. Dad, I want to marry Megan, but I just can't get over it. Well, what's the matter, his father asked. And after a long pause, the son sheepishly replied, Dad, I just don't know how to ask her. His father said, Son, simply ask her. There is no right or wrong way. You see, like this young man, there are many people who are afraid and do not know what to say in being a witness for Christ. And so they agonize. They get cold feet. They lack courage. And most all of us are like that at one time or another. We can begin our witness in the same way that the disciples did. After the ascension, the disciples are continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. That is how they began their witnessing of the events that had taken place. They show that our strongest witnessing begins by being immersed in giving praise and thanks and receiving God's gifts until our Lord returns. We too can begin our witnessing by praising and blessing God in His house. If you don't know what to say, if you're agonizing about it, if you lack courage, then simply begin with words praising God for Jesus' life death, resurrection, and ascension. Like Coach Rupp, many people believe that believing in your abilities is important. And yet no matter how hard we might try, we do have our limits. We are all, by nature, sinful and unclean. But God has given us an opportunity by giving us His Son. Jesus has called us to be witnesses of His death and resurrection. Witnesses who share the message of repentance and forgiveness. If we don't know what to say, we can begin our witness the way the disciples began theirs, by praising God for Jesus' life, for His death, for His resurrection, and for His ascension to the Father's right hand. May we lead daily lives of repentance for our failings, receive His gifts of forgiveness, and continually be prepared to give our praise-filled witness to Jesus, to who He is, to what He has done, to what He has promised, as we await His return as our risen and ascended Lord. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. And He has ascended into heaven, where He intercedes for us, where He waits for His faithful witnesses, His faithful disciples. May we be counted among them by God's grace. Amen.